Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one- to two-week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I am really excited to have my friend Yuval Levin on the program today. Uh, Yuval is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., where he also holds the uh, Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy, and he's the founder and editor of the journal National Affairs, also senior editor at The New Atlantis, contributing editor at National Review, and contributing opinion writer at The New York Times. Times and one of the smartest people I know. And so I, I, I wanted us to talk, Yuval, really because of a comment that you happened to make. A group of us were, were uh, gathered in meeting, and you were talking about how uh, the, the Jewish experience, experience of, of growing up as a Jewish American, really can contribute uh, quite a bit to all of the rest of us in terms of thinking about how to how to move through life in these times. And I haven't been able to get that out of my mind. But before we talk about that, if someone had told me a couple of years ago that I would be talking to Yuval Levin about Kanye West, I would have assumed that psychedelic mushrooms had been involved in, in some way. But... We are in the era in which Kanye West is in the news. Uh, comments about Jews and Judaism, uh, a lot of anti-Semitic tropes about uh, Jews controlling Hollywood and the press and, and so forth. And this really came to a peak when he teamed up with Nick Fuentes, Holocaust denier and uh, Nazi sympathizer, and they met with uh, former president of the United States in Florida, and that that uh, created quite a bit of conversation about that. But what's really interesting to me, there's there's a proposal at the Republican National Committee to uh, repudiate Kanye and Fuentes and, and all of these anti-Semitic uh, voices. But in the background, I mean, we've had the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. Uh, there, there have been all sorts of um, anti-Semitic acts of uh, violence around the country, not to mention around the world. Why doesn't this go away? 
Well, thank you, Russell, very much for having me and for raising these questions. I, I uh, Obviously, that's a question that we have to constantly ask ourselves, in particular people uh, in the Jewish community like myself, constantly find ourselves asking, how did this turn to us again? Uh, why doesn't this go away? Mm-hmm. I, I think it is a fact that in moments of change, of uncertainty, of flux in, in a culture, Throughout the history of the West, you've seen the emergence of intense anti-Semitism. When the society at large is asking itself, who's responsible for what's gone wrong here? And there isn't an obvious answer. All too often, the answer seems to be that somehow this group of insular outsiders who feels comfortable being outside of our mainstream and yet wants to be part of our larger national community um, is, is at fault. And you know, it's a challenge that Jews in America, thankfully, have had to wrestle with less than Jews in most places in most times. I mean, there's really no question that this is the safest place to be a Jewish person in the history of my religion. It's even safer in some respects than Israel, where certainly internally there aren't threats, but there is a constant threat from the outside that is not unrelated to these questions of anti-Semitism. And yet even in America, as you say, there are times when Jews seem to stand in for the outsider, and in moments where people reach for various kinds of exclusionary solidarity, and this is such a moment in America, there's no way around that, one of the forms that takes can be anti-Semitism. I think we have to, you know, in thinking about it, we we have to begin with what there is to be grateful for, which is that anti-Semitism is certainly the exception in American life. It is the exception in just about every institution. It's the exception on both sides of our politics, um, and that's great. But Mm -hmm. it is, as you say, increasingly evident nonetheless. And I think it's a set of threats that that contemporary American Jews have to think about again in a way that maybe for a while we had been uh, lulling ourselves into believing we wouldn't have to think about. And so it's a very live question in the last few years for us. Why do you suppose the the same tropes uh, keep getting used. I mean, I, I can go back and read some horrifying uh, comments from, in my own Christian tradition, Martin Luther mm. uh, and, and others, and you, you see the same tropes uh, showing up all the way through to Kanye West, uh, that there's this that there's this uh, cabal of people who are actually uh, controlling everything. You know, I think there are a few things going on. I mean, part of it is simply the existence of the images. That is, there is a kind of cultural vocabulary out there in which to talk about uh, unseen forces. And as I say, there are times when society feels like it's being controlled by some unseen forces. um, And we, we always yearn for some explanation in those moments. We turn to conspiracy theories. Um, and, you know, there are a few kind of traditional common uh, objects of such conspiracies. I, a long time ago, I, I wrote a dissertation about the, the politics of England in the late 18th century at the University of Chicago. And one of the things that, that strikes you when you read the letters of serious people from those times is the kinds of conspiracies they trafficked in regarding Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very similar kinds of power behind the throne sorts of tropes. Yeah. And you find people who were who were learned and thoughtful and otherwise quite impressive. Just it's clear in their in their private letters that they believe these things. They weren't mm-hmm. doing this, uh, you know, as a show for political purposes. They're talking with each other about things that to us just seem, uh, you know, absolutely nuts. 
Um, there is absolutely a set of tropes like this uh, about Jews in the West where, um, you know, in part the Jewish community um, has kept itself a kind of insular community. It doesn't seek to convert others and it very much seeks to resist being converted by others. Uh, it tries to be self-sufficient kind of on the side. Um, and so it feels a little exotic. It feels like uh, a, a, an outside world within the national community. Um, and you know, in America, as in other places at other times, Jews have also been involved in government, involved in, in economics. There are historical reasons for this. Um, you know, in medieval Europe, the Jews were the only people allowed to engage in banking and, uh, and, and lending for, uh, for, for interest. And so they came to be identified. You know, there was no way to win. It was the only thing they were allowed to do. And yet they then came to be blamed for uh, the downsides of uh, essentially pre-modern capitalism. Um, some of that is still out there. But I also think that it is just a way of kind of naming uh, a, a, a community of outsiders that seems to be uh, inexplicably capable of, uh, of, of, of uh, living outside the bounds of the larger society. This is less true in America now. Jews are very integrated into American life. Um, it's not such an insular community, but that vocabulary is there, and people reach for it when they're uh, when they're looking to explain. And look, some of it we have to say is just evil. I mean, it is just the the, the dark impulse in the heart of man, and that's not something we're going to be able to explain rationally. But mm -hmm. I think there is a way that people reach for these anti-Semitic tropes when they're moved uh, by those impulses. Even apart from anti-Semitism, you mentioned um, conspiracy theories and so forth. I was struck this week by reading two very different pieces about the, the metaphor of the matrix. Uh, one by uh, Damon Linker uh, talking about, in some extremist groups, this idea of being red-pilled, right. um, of sort of waking up to the way things really are. And uh, one by uh, an evangelical, Samuel James, who wrote that the matrix is not the metaphor we are looking for. Because he said what, what the matrix idea does is to give people an enemy whoever that is, there's some shadowy uh, group of people, elites or whoever, uh, that's out there that that's keeping me down. And, and, and inevitably, he says, that leads to a guru mm -hmm. uh, who will tell you who these people are and, and how to fight them. Do you see that going on uh, right now, sort of that, that matrix metaphor uh, or, or things like it infecting the way that we see the world? I do think that this is that kind of moment. It's a time when it feels like things are out of our immediate control. Um, and for a lot of Americans, there's just a sense that things are moving quickly in a direction they didn't choose. And somebody must have chosen it. And so the question is who? Who is responsible? And uh, ultimately, it's also, of course, always uh, attractive to try to find uh explanations for the problems we have. Um, you know, I think that the there's a way of thinking about politics in a democratic society that takes itself to be sophisticated, but is actually very naive. And that way says, there is someone who's responsible for this whole thing. And by seeing who that someone is, I understand the whole thing. I will tell you, I've been worked uh, in and around politics now for more than two decades, having worked for a Speaker of the House and for a President of the United States. Um, the hardest thing to wrap your head around in politics is that nobody really knows what they're doing. 
Mm. Um, and I don't mean that in the worst way. They're not idiots. They're not always failing. Yeah. But they're always, like everybody else, struggling to keep up with a changing world. And the idea that somebody's got a plan <laughs> and you're just a pawn in their plan is not true. Let me tell you, they do not have a plan. It's kind of like, it's kind of like growing up and realizing, oh, wait a minute. I don't think my parents knew everything <laughs> the way I thought they did. Yeah, exactly. You reach that point and suddenly, you know, everything falls apart. And, and I, I mean, it, for me, you know, I, I, I worked for Newt Gingrich as a, just out of college. I was 21 years old. I, I, during the time of the Bill Clinton impeachment, I, I would write into the office and read in the Washington Post about how Republican leaders had all these plans for how this was going to work out. And then I'd get to the office and nobody knew anything, nothing. Yeah. Nobody knew what was going to happen that afternoon. And, you know, you, you learn from that kind of experience that the, 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 the kind of intense desire to narrate, to tell a story that makes sense, um, valuable as that is, sometimes really gets in the way of actual understanding. Hmm. The world is very messy. And it is not, in fact, usually open to a story that is very simple and very clear. But when you're at a somewhat greater distance, you always think, well, somebody's in charge and somebody's doing this on purpose. Yeah. So that, you know, we went through the pandemic uh, over the the past two years. And the hardest thing to accept was this is just as shocking to the president and to the, you know, and to Tony Fauci, is it just everybody else? They don't know either. Mm -hmm. um, they're just trying to figure it out too. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help when people pretend to know. It doesn't help when people act as though they know more than they do. But the fact is, there was always this desire to say, they're doing this to me on purpose. Yeah. They know this isn't the way, but they want me to do it because X, Y, and Z. And that is the path toward a kind of conspiracism. Um, it's, it's hard to avoid because it feels like sophistication. It feels like more knowledge when actually it's less knowledge. I think there's always been this kind of Gnostic attraction, this sense of like the real knowledge isn't here. The real knowledge is somewhere else. And I can get to that realm. Um, I guess my view is the real knowledge is here and we don't have much of it. So, mm -hmm. uh, the world is just about as messy as it seems to be. This episode is brought to you in part by Matthew 5-9 Fellowship, who supports evangelical pastors and leaders in shepherding their communities to live the gospel and place their identity in Jesus Christ above partisanship and societal divisions. Jesus has called his disciples to be peacemakers, and that call is particularly needed in our often toxically polarized society. The Matthew 5-9 Fellowship provides resources to help pastors, leaders, and their communities faithfully navigate difficult issues without dividing over them. It fosters relationship by connecting like-minded evangelical leaders across the country. Also, they care about the personal well-being of pastors and leaders, so they provide space and opportunities to experience spiritual renewal to ensure leaders flourish both privately and publicly. A polarized country needs a peacemaking church. Check us out at matthew59.org. Sign up for our monthly newsletter and download free resources such as our Transcending Toxic Polarization booklet using the code MATTHEW59. I was, we're part of a, a group uh, that to, gets together uh, regularly. And at one time I was uh, talking about you with another one of us, uh, Tim Keller, who said, uh, can, you know, here you've all is in this group of mostly uh, Christians, and uh, often we'll be talking about uh, things going on in Christian 
uh, books or in Christianity. Uh, and he said, you, you just, you notice he always has a, a curiosity about uh, other people's uh, points of views, not defensive at all, uh, even though you're, I think, the only uh, Jewish person there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was just talking about how commendable that is. And I was thinking about it when you when you mentioned, I don't even know what we were talking about, but you mentioned this sense of uh, American Jews never having this mentality or, or expectation of being in the majority mm. uh, in this country and that, that actually being a really good thing. I wonder if you can explain sort of what that what that looks like from your perspective as somebody who is two things that I've noticed among many other things. But one of me, you're part of a, a minority religion numerically uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. Two, you might be one of the most patriotic people I know, enthusiastic about uh, the United States. Alexis de Tocqueville is always right over your shoulder there. Uh, and so you don't have some understanding of, well, I'm a I'm a victim because I'm in a minority in that way. So what what have you learned just sort of seeing both of those aspects of life? Well, thank you. I appreciate the question put that way. I, I um, For me, these two things are very closely related. Mm. Um, being uh, a, a confident member of a minority religion, meaning I'm not, uh, I'm not afraid of talking to people who are uh, of other views of other faiths, even if they want to convert me, you know, I, I want to hear it out. I don't think I'm going anywhere. And I'd love to hear how you think about the world. Um, and at the same time, to live in a society where it is possible to be um, in a minority and yet safe and involved in the governance of that society and uh, part of its life in a full way, even though you're also in a full way part of one of its uh, sub-communities. And in my case, quite a small one. Jews are about 3% of the population, so very much a minority. Um, I, I think part of the magic of America is that it began by taking its own diversity for granted. We, we think about diversity as though it were some kind of 21st century invention. Mm. But diversity has always been the American reality. And... When you, when you look at the ways in which the people who formed our approach to governance and framed our constitution thought about what they were doing, what they were doing was really trying to find a way for a divided and diverse society to hold together, govern itself, to let people thrive and prosper. James Madison says in, in Federalist 10, so in 1787, he says, uh, the, the, as long as the mind of man is free, people will arrive at different opinions. Um, and he doesn't just mean opinions about little things. He means religious views and basic core commitments. That's a problem. It means that uh, there's not going to be uh, absolute consensus on large questions. But it can also be a strength. And in any case, it's a function of freedom. So that if we believe the human person is meant to be free, then we believe that human communities are meant to be diverse. Um, and I think that the, the ways in which American society tries to make a virtue of this necessity um, are pretty extraordinary and are effective. And, you know, Jews have always been, uh, well, almost always, Jews have been since the, the Roman conquest, a minority. They've been a minority wherever we've been um, until modern Israel in, in 1948. 
Um, Jews had very little political power. And even when we did, we were generally a minority. And we were generally a persecuted minority um, to, to one degree or another. We are even now only, you know, two and a half generations removed from a time when uh, when Jews were systematically murdered in Europe um, in the middle of uh, in the heart of Western civilization. So that to live in a place like this, where that not only doesn't happen, but where we are invited in um, to be part of the life of this society is first and foremost an extraordinary uh, privilege. And it, it, it leaves me very grateful to live in this place in this time so that I do begin from tremendous patriotism. I'm an immigrant. I, I was born in Israel. I, I grew up in the United States. My family came when I was eight years old. But I know that the world can be different. Um, and therefore, it's important for me to recognize and to help other people see how extraordinary the achievement of this society is and the, the ways in which... I'll tell you a quick story, if you don't mind, Russell. Sure. About the ways in which America treats its, its, its Jewish population. I, I, I worked for George W. Bush when he was president. Um, I worked for him as a, as a White House policy staffer. And in 2006, I think it is, um, it happened that the Jewish holiday of Purim, which, uh, which marks essentially Jewish survival uh, in ancient Persia, fell on the same day uh, as Good Friday. Mm. which was uh, traditionally in Europe a time of, of pogroms, of attacks on the Jews who, of course, were blamed uh, for, for, for the killing of Jesus. And so this Jewish holiday fell on a day that traditionally had been really a time of great fear for Jews. Um, because it was Purim, a small group of us in the White House uh, who were Jews, led by a former, my former boss, Tevi Troy, um, got together. What you do on Purim is you read the Scroll of Esther. Um, and so we got together with a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, um, to read the scroll of Esther over lunch, uh, at the white house. And one of us was, uh, president Bush's body man, the guy who, the, the kid really, who kind of walks around with him all day, carries his wallet, carries his comb. And so he asked for a little time off in the middle of the day. The president asked him why and he told him what we were doing. And President Bush suggested that we do it rather than in this little conference room where we were going to meet, um, that, we, that, we, that we use one of the ceremonial rooms at the White House. Mm. Uh, it was private. Um, but there we were, you know, a bunch of, of Jews in America sitting on, I think it was literally a room that had furniture that had belonged to Thomas Jefferson, mm. um, reading the Hebrew Bible with a rabbi. And I just couldn't help thinking, this is how America treats its Jews. We were invited there literally by the president of the United States to practice our religion uh, openly and unafraid on Good Friday. Um, that does not happen in most times and places. And it would be crazy not to start by being very, very grateful for that kind of thing. You know, president Bush, uh, I remember uh, after September 11th, when there was quite a bit of uh, backlash uh, against American Muslims uh, and everyone was lumped in in some places as being a radical jihadist, uh, American Muslims. President Bush went out of his way to talk about uh, this is not a war against Muslims mm -hmm. and to, to stand up for, uh, for those patriotic, law-abiding uh, Muslim uh, citizens. And yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is how integration works and it's how uh, religious diversity works. There is a way in which being a minority 
in a society that is this tolerant of minorities, and it is to a very great degree, um, can teach some lessons that nowadays can help communities that have thought of themselves as majorities. Mm-hmm. I mean, the United States is um, becoming less uh, less religious. Um, I think this is a bad thing. I think it is. It's easy to overstate it. Most Americans, by far, believe in God and think of themselves as religious people, but are less affiliated with religious communities. And I've found that friends in the in the Christian world, especially maybe in the kind of white evangelical world, are struggling with the question of how to move from thinking of themselves as the natural majority to thinking of themselves as a religious minority and struggling to find ways in which this could be advantageous and at the very least ways in which this can be lived with. Um, and I think communities like mine and like Muslims and maybe in some ways like Catholics, Catholics are a very large minority. Um, you know, have something to offer here and can help people think about some of the ways in which being a minority is not always bad in a society that is this free and this tolerant. Mm -hmm. It does give you a kind of dynamism, a kind of strength that forces you to ask yourself how you're different, which is a question that your children have to ask if they're going to hang on to their religion in some way. Um, And so there are ways to to turn that to to the good. There was a book several years ago, The Immigrant Advantage, I believe was the name of it, that looked at, um, I think, three separate communities, American Jews, uh, Cuban-Americans, and, uh, and Latter-day Saints. And so these are, these are minorities that have flourished uh, in the United States uh, for, for the most part. And the book argued that one of the reasons for that is a, is a sense of chosenness, which sounds kind of counterintuitive because that idea of being um, chosen, being special, being, uh, being called out would seem to create a kind of arrogance. But instead, in all of these communities, it was, we have a responsibility um, to care for other people, to serve other people and so forth. And that that When immigrant communities or minority religions, when they do the best, there is that sense of confidence in their own uh, religion without the expectation of being the majority. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. And, you know, there are ways in which um, one way to think about that kind of chosenness is that you always have to think about the kind of example you're setting. Um, Mm. That wherever you are, whatever you're doing, people will look at you as an instance of your community. Um, and so you don't want to put your whole community in a bad light by misbehaving. And that gives you another reason to think twice before misbehaving. Um, I do think there is a way in which that can act as a kind of constraint. You want to be, you want to be thought of, well, I mean, you know, we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of LDS family, a lot of Mormon families where I happen to live in Maryland. And we often find ourselves thinking, you know, what, what are these people doing right? They have a lot of kids, they're happy, they're so kind and generous as neighbors. That's how you want to be thought of. Mm-hmm. You want to live in a way that people will ask, what is, what is that community doing right? I got to learn more about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I do think there's a way in which seeing yourself in a minority in that sense, obviously there are also burdens, right? There are ways in which you are a, something of an outsider. There are ways in which uh, maybe you don't always have the power that you need to protect your way of life. Um, so by no means is it all uh, is it all wine and roses? But I think there are strengths, there are forms of dynamism that come from having 
to do the work of thriving as a minority that then also help you uh, help that larger community thrive. And I think a lot of minorities in America think of themselves in part as called on to help that larger community succeed, um, to play some role. You know, I always think about the, the there's a, a Jewish women's group called Hadassah, which um, is involved largely in helping, uh, in, in doing charitable work outside the Jewish community. And they have this kind of informal motto that says, we don't help people because they're Jewish, we help people because we're Jewish. Mm. Um, and I, I think that that's a way of thinking that forces you to, to, to look for the best in, what, in, in, in where you come from and in what you have to offer. Um, and so it can be a source of strength, obviously, alongside some very real challenges and, and dangers. You know, when I talk to people who are kind of frantic uh, in, a, in a culture war sense, evangelical Christians or uh, other Christians who, are, who seem to be really frenzied and frantic, and I'm not talking about the conflict entrepreneurs, I'm talking about just regular people who are very scared and, and anxious, a lot of it has to do with their children. Um, it, what's going to happen? Are my my children going to lose uh, their faith because of uh, all of the secularism around me, or whatever? Um, and so there's that sense of fear there. What do you think that Christians can learn about educating children in a way that uh, that keeps the distinctiveness, the separateness? but without um, sheltering them off from the rest of the world. Yeah, that's, that's a huge challenge. And obviously that fear um, is, is universal. I mean, the sense in any, in any uh, morally defined community, the worry is always, is this going to persist? Are my kids going to find it persuasive? Can I keep them uh, in the fold? And in some ways that is an even greater challenge for uh, a minority religion where the wider world is very attractive, and um, you know there are a lot of advantages to kind of putting it, putting aside what distinguishes you, so that you can be part of that larger um, of that larger world. And you know, in American life, that world doesn't demand that you formally renounce anything or convert, um, but it does subtly ask that you uh, put aside your deepest commitments and ad- adopt a different set of them. Um, I think one way in which uh, at least my community has responded to this, and I think it's true in other religious minorities to an extent, is with an intense focus on formation and education. Um, a lot of of self-conscious formative institutions and practices. So that in a lot of ways, the community is organized around this question of how do we make this way of life attractive to the rising generation? I think that can be very healthy. Um, it forces you to think about what is best about what you have to offer. It forces you to think about how to speak in terms that uh, appeal to serious people who may not naturally see what you're offering them. It forces you, I think, as a religious community to think about that large, broad yes to which, uh, which you're offering to people, for which sometimes you have to say no, right? Religious life does involve saying no to certain temptations in the larger world. Mm -hmm. And I think to attract the rising generation, you have to be careful not to just say no, Mm -hmm. not to say what defines us is we don't eat that and we don't work on that day and we don't, uh, you know, we don't talk this way and we don't watch that movie. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what defines us, right? There's a reason why we say no. That reason is what defines us. And that reason is some idea of the human person 
that is profound and deep and rooted in a commitment to justice. And that has to be made clear um, to the rising generation, because otherwise you're, you're just presenting your way of life as a set of restraints and prohibitions. Um, and that's going to have no shot in a free society. Um, so I, I think by being forced to think that way, by being forced to think about what it is you're offering, um, and not just what it is you're asking uh, your children to give up, um, that can make you stronger. And there is a way in which not owning the larger culture means you have to work at that. It doesn't do that work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's good and bad, but you have to see the good in it. You have to see that it forces you to think about really what are your commitments, what are your deepest beliefs, and why do you think they should be uh, attractive to your children? And ultimately, it's because they're true. Um, and that's what they have to learn. When you think about the ways that technology seems to have disrupted in many ways for the good, but all of the issues that we're not, we don't even know how to deal with yet when it comes to social media and hyper-connectedness and, and all of those things. Now we're in a situation where a, a lot of people are nervous who weren't nervous before. Before people were worried about, well, what's going to happen to me if I do manual labor and a robot can do it? And there was this entire other group of people who thought, well, uh, or, or, technology can never replace me mm-hmm. because I, I deal in words and now technology. <laughs> I says, write advertising. No computer could ever. Yeah. yeah. And, and so where do you think that's headed just in terms of the way our society holds together? It's a good question. You know, it's a hard question. I mean, I, I think part of the part of the reason it's complicated is because this is a concern that has arisen over and over in the modern era. Um, you can look in on the the kind of literature of political debate almost any time since the beginning of the 20th century, maybe even a little before, and you find these worries about automation and displacement, um, and really what 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 is the worker? What is the human being? What do, what is it that we do that can't be replaced? Um, and it's true there are ways that artificial intelligence uh, asks that question in a more profound sense because it doesn't just uh, step in for our physical strength, but for what we think of as really distinctly human. But I think what's ultimately really distinctly human. Um, are a set of moral commitments that are exactly what we should recur to in a time like this. I, I, I tend to think that it's, it's exactly when we confront questions that seem to be brand new that we should look to answers that have endured the longest and that are most basic and profound. Mm. So that I don't think we need a theology of artificial intelligence. I just think we need a theology of the human person. Mm. Um, and we have one. Um, and it's got quite deep roots, and it's quite broad, and and um, and so I think this is a time less to be engaging with the particularities of this technology or that, and more to be engaging with the foundational texts and questions and uh, and, and and stories and truths of our civilization. When you face uh, a, a a human problem in the life of a particular person. I don't think we do get to a place where um, the, the, the wisdom required to help a fellow human being contend with, with true deep trouble um, is going to be replaced by a machine. I don't think we need to worry about that. Mm. I think we need to worry about there not being people around who can help that person 
And so we need to form such people. So to me, you know, these kind of moments of change are the times that make me most conservative. They're Mm -hmm. the times that send me most intensely back to the basic sources that we're always going to need because ultimately every human generation is always doing the same thing. Mm. Um, And that reality is why it's important to get to the bottom of the truth. You mentioned working for a Speaker of the House and uh, about how there there wasn't as much um, planning, uh, scheming, whatever, behind the scenes as, as people would assume. We watched this month, uh, an election uh, for Speaker of the House and the House of Representatives that went to 15 uh, votes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, a great deal of what seemed to be just complete uh, chaos. And some of that chaos continues with yeah. with uh, questions of debt ceiling and, and so forth. When you look at that as somebody who's been working with, uh, working in the area of institutions for so long, do you see another broken institution or do you just see the way that politics works? So I'd say a few things. I, I, on the one hand, Congress is certainly broken in some important ways. It's not functioning in the way that it ought to. Um, and th- the question to ask when you say such a thing, because everybody would agree, say Congress isn't working right. Um, but what is Congress failing to do? Congress is failing to do its core job, which is not what we often think it is when we uh, when we first ask ourselves the question. Congress's core job is not to advance the priorities of the most devoted activists on either side of our politics. Its core job is to is to allow the representatives of a divided society to address public problems through negotiation mm-hmm. and bargaining and compromise. That's what Congress is failing to do. It has been failing to do now really for something like a generation, and we've paid a price for that. I actually tend to think that something like what we saw is a sign of Congress regaining some functionality. I think there was a process there of negotiation. Um, There was a process there uh, of of really trying to work out some differences. It's true that it was not as uh, neat as as we might have hoped, and we haven't seen multiple rounds of balloting for Speaker of the House in 100 years. It's very unusual. Um, but ultimately, it, it, it felt to me like a revival of the internal energy of the House. The House of Representatives and the Senate now, too, are too centralized. There's too much power in the hands of leaders, which means not enough real representation happens. And I think some of what these members walked away with um, it was a kind of decentralization that ultimately will help us. And the way to tell good from bad change in the House is to remember that the purpose of the institution is to enable, even to compel, some bargaining and accommodation across lines of difference. Sometimes that can look messy, but that's what's required for a society like ours to work out its differences. The absence of bargaining, a very clean kind of partisanship where the two sides are on opposite sides of the room talking about each other rather than in the middle talking to each other, that's a failure in Congress. I think we've seen that for too long. But if anything, I was left a little hopeful after uh, what we saw this, uh, what we saw in January, that maybe there will now be a little more openness to real debate and negotiation. It'll be messy, but that's okay. Democracy is messy. But the negotiation and bargaining wasn't bipartisan with the House itself coming up with, it was one side. It was, yeah. it was. Now, it in was, this case, that's right. But, you know, I think the beginning of cross-partisan negotiation 
is intra-partisan factions. Mm. The two parties now are much too cohesive. Each of them is, is perfectly united on every question, and that leaves very little room for bargaining and negotiation. Bargaining happens when there are a few people on one side who are more open than the others to talking to the other side. And so you saw, for example, in the last Congress, the only things that got done were a few things where basically two Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, were willing to work with something like eight or 10 Republican senators. And they got, they, they got things done on infrastructure. They got things done on electoral reform on, on a few other things. And that's all that got done. You need some internal diversity within the parties. You need some people who say, we're one part of the Democratic Party. There are other parts, and we're going to work this out and then negotiate. Um, and, and the same in the Republican Party. <clears throat> Again, I think some signs of life on that front are useful. Um, so I was not uh, terribly discouraged by what I saw there. I, I think it could have been done in a less embarrassing way for the new speaker, but that's okay. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. There, there was a, an article uh, last year in, I, I believe it was The Intercept, um, looking at progressive uh, organizations uh, in m mostly advocacy organizations in Washington, um, sort of internally melting down with kind of uh, slack wars uh, going on, identity politics constantly, and even sort of off the record, very left uh, figures were saying we can't we can't operate this way, and I, I think that that piece resonated with a lot of people, even on the right, because yeah. they have it's sort of a, a parallel uh, kind of reality going on, and everyone seems to be wondering how on earth. Can we can we actually rebuild uh, institutions when under the surface there there is just a a constant threat level where it's very hard to differentiate between this is kind of irritating to me and you're abusing and marginalizing me. Do do you see do you see that reality? And if yeah. so, how how do we how do we get through it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think part of what happens there is a kind of confusion of roles, uh, a failure to distinguish between what happens inside the institution and what happens outside, a failure to see <clears throat> that in institutions rely on different people doing different jobs. And so you can't treat them all 
as if they were just kind of open arenas for political combat. Um, and you know, I, in a way there is, there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of eating your own, uh, element to this, that these institutions that operate this way in an outward way that treat the rest of society as just an arena for savage political combat that looks only like, uh, you know, a, a, a take no prisoners kind of assault. Eventually they're going to turn inward and do the same thing. Mm. Um, and if, if the way you think about how to use social power um, basically involves that kind of fight to the death, you're eventually going to destroy yourself. Um, and I think we certainly saw that kind of logic uh, operating uh, on the left in recent years. It is, it is happening still. Um, as you say, there are, there are some ways in which that also happens in more right-leaning institutions. Working within an institution requires a lot of patience. It requires uh, a, a kind of long-term vision of what you're trying to achieve. It requires a lot of tolerance for human beings, you know, who are difficult. We all are. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the, the way to amass all of that is to be deeply committed to the purpose of the institution and to see that ultimately what's required in a fallen world um, is that we work incrementally and gradually toward achieving these positive goods. Um, I, I think that kind of patience rooted in that kind of view is in short supply now in American life in general. And we're seeing the consequences of essentially failures of formation. Um, and those consequences look very ugly for a lot of our institutions. You have written and spoken quite a bit about um, this dynamic in which institutions must form trustworthy people. And institutions must be formed by trustworthy people. How do we get out of the cycle, though, uh, when, when it looks as though almost every institution in American life is in a, a kind of crisis? Yeah. If the institution's not doing that and we say, well, the, the answer is there have to be trustworthy people to, to lead those institutions, but they're not being formed by the institutions. I mean. Isn't that a, a, a circle yeah. that we can't escape? How, how do we break that? Yeah, I think it, that's exactly right. It's a very hard question. And, and uh, I would say a vicious cycle is the way to think about it. It's a process that makes itself worse um, because it is uh, a, a kind of repeating cycle. Um, the, the institutions require a certain kind of person. And that kind of person is only produced by a certain kind of institution. And so where do you start? And I think that's really the question is, where can we intervene rather than where is the problem centered? Mm -hmm. Where can we actually do something constructive about it? And those aren't always the same thing. Um, and so it seems to me that that argues for starting where we are. We're starting first and foremost with ourselves. That is demanding from ourselves a certain kind of responsibility in the institutions that we are part of. And asking ourselves the question, given the role that I've got here, how should I think about this decision that's in front of me? Mm. Not just what do I want and how do I want to be seen? But, you know, I'm a teacher or I'm a police officer or I'm the president of the United States and what's required of me here. And then to take that kind of attitude in, to, to apply it to our expectations of others and say, well, that guy's a teacher or, you know, a police officer. Well, th there's, this, there's something that, that that demands of them that they're not doing. And to express our dissatisfaction in terms of a failure to live up to institutions by beginning from where we are 
and by then helping to shape our expectations of others, basically around questions of responsibility. Responsibility is a really important word in a free society. It, it really means both uh, taking ownership of that society, saying, this is mine. I'm not just going to stand around and wait for somebody else to solve this problem. I have to do it. And at the same time, also being held accountable mm. um, and saying certain things are expected of me because I am here and therefore I've got to live up to those. Th that's the place where we can start. It's not a substitute for real institutional reform, for changing the systems, changing the structures. Some of that absolutely has to happen. But we're only going to understand how to do that. We're only going to be able to do it if we begin by recognizing that what's missing is responsibility. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do you change the incentives to help people be more responsible? How do you change expectations and rules and laws? And as long as that is guided by a very personal sense of what is required of me, what is required of you in the different roles we have in our lives, I think we can begin to rebuild the capacity for trust and therefore to, be, to build institutions that build trust. We trust people when we believe they're doing what's demanded of them and they're not abusing us and their power. Um, you know, you trust a person not only when you think they're up to the job, but also when you think there are things they wouldn't do because they have this job. Mm -hmm. And we have to persuade each other of that. There's no other way to build trust than by offering proof that we deserve it. I was talking to a friend the other night who was expressing how difficult it is. He teaches a high school boys Sunday school class in the evangelical church. And he said, the difficult thing is all it takes is one jaded, cynical student in the room. And it, it changes the whole dynamic because, uh, because then everyone else, they tend to feel as though if they're not jaded and cynical that they're corny. Um, and so it, it just it just completely disengages the rest of them. And as he was saying this, I thought, you know, that really is a metaphor for almost every arena that that I can see mm -hmm. of institutional life right now. Yeah. What do we What do we do when cynicism and jadedness seems to it, it looks more realistic? Yeah than people who actually want to contribute and, and change things. I think that's a great way to put the question because, and, and you know, I, I find myself constantly in a position of being the earnest guy who says, you know, just be responsible. <laughs> um, and, and so you naturally have to ask yourself, you know, how does this land? What is this, what, 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 how does this strike people in this moment? But I have to tell you, there is a real hunger being called to this kind of responsibility. And I think part of the answer to the challenge that you're describing is that we have to help people see that cynicism is naive, mm. that cynicism actually assumes uh, a, a, a series of things about the human person that are not true. Um, it, it, first of all, assumes the cynic knows more than they know, that they're the sophisticated one, they see through society um, and ultimately, the cynic probably knows less, mm. and the cynic is probably afraid to admit how little he knows. Mm. Um, and by beginning from recognizing how little we know, and by beginning from acknowledging that we need to be formed, that we need to participate in other people's formation, that we want to be part of something larger than ourselves, something more meaningful 
than our own desires. Um, that's a way to start to treat yourself seriously as a human being. Hmm. I think people are hungry for it, even though they don't want to admit that. And even though their willingness to admit it is very, very vulnerable to cynicism. Nobody wants to seem like a sucker. Yeah. You know, like I'm the guy who's going to follow the rules while everybody else is going around me. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think there is much more willingness and much more eagerness to be part of something more meaningful if it's offered to you. And so I think the strategy is to offer it. Offer it to those kids. Yeah, there's, there's going to be the cynical guy in the room, but the rest are listening more than we might think. Mm. Um, and ultimately, by speaking to them in ways that are evidently truthful, I think you do have a way to reach them. Never going to be easy. And, you know, teenagers uh, are teenagers. That's not a new problem. But I do think that the, the fact that our larger society has this disposition is a very real problem. And yet it also means people are more hungry than ever for something to really be part of and really believe in. We should not underestimate um, how open people might be to a genuine call to something higher than themselves. I notice in talking to pastors uh, every day that many of them are, I mean, almost all of them are concerned about saying, look, we made it through COVID and we were able to do it. We, 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 we were agile enough to use technology and to do those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But now, now things don't seem to be coming back. A lot of the people who, when we were shut down, uh, they didn't come back and, and we're losing that. What advice would you give to people who are, who are attempting to build these uh, places where people can connect in a time when it's just, it's really hard for people to, uh, even if you just take the spiritual out, even just in terms of, of friendships. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I talked to, you know, somewhere, anywhere from 30s uh, on, especially men who will say, I don't know how to make friends now. Yeah. How, how should we start to correct that? Yeah, the, the challenge here is, I would say, it is nicely summed up by a very basic principle of classical sociology, which is people don't come together to be together. People come together to do something together. Mm -hmm. um, now, that something can be spiritual formation. It can be, of course, prayer and, and religious services. But it also has to somehow speak to their sense of what they need in their lives. Um, and so people won't reach out and make friends because they need friends. That's, that's just not how we work. Mm -hmm. um, we, we make friends in the contexts of other institutions. In fact, you know, when, when I talk to people about this subject, and, you know, institutions are a really broad, vague term, and it's hard to define. One way to get, a, get it across is to say, think about the, the five people that you are closest to in your life and ask yourself, how do I know these people? Hmm. And the answer is going to be things like family and work and school and church. Those are institutions. Um, and the, 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 they make their usefulness to us apparent by the kinds of secondary effects they have. You know, I didn't, I didn't take a job to make friends. I needed a job, but I did make friends. Mm -hmm. We have to think about how to speak to people's needs in ways that also approach them in healthy forms and enable them to, to form connections. Um, and I do think it's a real challenge for religious institutions now to think about how do we appeal to younger people and, and maybe especially younger men who are the, 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 the least likely to admit that they need something. Mm -hmm. um, 
how do we appeal to them in ways that seem like uh, they they should draw them in? I think some of that has to involve making showing them that they are needed as much as showing them that you can meet their needs. This is always a hard thing, but you know yes. there's a practice in Jewish communities that uh, twice a day you you have a, a memorial prayer for people who have lost someone in their family, and for that prayer you need ten people in the community to attend, mm. and so the rabbi can say. 10 of you need to be here so that this person can remember their father properly. And you know what? People come, people show up mm. and they show up not because they're, you know, they're just always at the synagogue, but because you told them that you need them. Yeah. Um, and to show people that they are needed is one way to help them meet their own spiritual needs if they're not inclined to recognize those and see those. But I do think we have to think anew. I mean, there isn't going to be just a bouncing back to a pre-COVID norm. I think that's true in a lot of arenas of American life where COVID is behind us. And yet, you know, downtown DC is pretty empty. Yeah. Um, people have not returned to the life they had before. And it's not because they're afraid of COVID. They've just fallen into a new pattern of living. And we have to ask ourselves, uh, you know, how do we make the case for better ways of living not because we used to do this, but because we should do this. Hmm. Yuval Levin, every time I talk to you, you give me uh, hours and hours and hours of things to, to ponder about for, for weeks and months to come. And I'm really glad that uh, our listeners were able to listen in on this today. Thanks so much for being here. Well, same for me, Russell. And thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Links are always in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode, including a link about how you can have a trial membership to Christianity Today. Be sure to subscribe to the program, send an episode along to a friend who might benefit from it, and leave us a review when you can. It helps other people to find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.